Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to MoFo Competition, a podcast series where MoFo's antitrust lawyers will discuss current trends in antitrust and give tips on how to navigate today's shifting competition law landscape. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part series focused on antitrust risk in the government contract space. In this first episode, we focus on the DOJ's new enforcement initiative focused on government procurement and the types of red flag conduct you and your company should be watching out for. In the second episode, we will talk about the criminal and civil penalties and exposure you might face for antitrust violations, as well as proactive steps you can take to improve compliance and protect your company. The DOJ's antitrust division recently announced a new initiative with the FBI to detect and prosecute collusion related to supply chain disruptions on February 17, 2022. The DOJ said it'll focus on a variety of industries particularly affected by transportation constraints, disruptions to routine business operations, and difficulty in obtaining raw materials, ranging from agriculture to healthcare. On April 5th, the head of the Procurement Collusion Strike Force at DOJ, Daniel Glad, said that the DOJ had more than 60 investigations open involving bid rigging on government contracts. In today's podcast, we'll answer your most pressing questions about this heightened enforcement risk. Why now? What does this initiative look like in practice? And how does this new initiative fit with prior ones like the Strike Force? The DOJ's announcement also coincides with some recent developments in current and expected government spending. The Department of Transportation requested $450 million in proposals, the highest ever requested, for grants to expand ports, terminals, piers, rail yards, and storage facilities from the $1 trillion infrastructure plan on February 23, 2022. In addition, the Senate has reached an agreement in principle for a new $10 billion COVID relief bill. As we'll discuss in this podcast, these developments together heighten vigilance when the circumstances for collusion are ripe, create a perfect storm for increased enforcement actions in the government contracting space. So welcome, my name is Bonnie Lau. I'm an antitrust litigation partner in MoFo San Francisco office. I focus on government enforcement actions and defend civil and class action litigation involving price fixing, bid rigging, market allocation, and monopolization claims. To help us explore and answer some of these questions, I'm joined by Kevin Mullen, co-chair of MoFo's Government Contracts Group in DC. He has more than 30 years of experience representing contractors in areas that often overlap with antitrust compliance and liability. Also with us today is Joe Folio of counsel in MoFo's Antitrust Practice Group in DC. Joe is not only a former DOJ antitrust prosecutor, but he was also the chief counsel for the Senate's Oversight Committee, which was responsible for creating and overseeing the federal inspector generals that try to root out waste, fraud, and abuse in government contracting. Joe, let's start with you. Based on your time as a prosecutor in the DOJ's antitrust division, why do you think the division is rolling out this initiative now, and what is it going to look like in practice? As you said, Bonnie, the circumstances are ripe for collusion. First and foremost, there has been and will continue to be substantial outflows of government money. 
as you mentioned, Bonnie, the government is spending billions of dollars as part of COVID relief, as part of an infrastructure package, and now even on the conflict in Ukraine. The second important factor is economic and uncertainty or hardships, which provide people with a motive to collude. And when they're facing thinner profit margins or even new competition, they look for ways to try and increase their profits. Now, to be sure, some of the collusion that occurs is outright malfeasance. These are bad actors who are looking to take advantage of a time when enforcement capabilities are stretched thinly because there's so much to cover. But other collusion is less willful. With so much happening so quickly, companies can lose sight of their compliance and training. Limited time and resources, staffing turnover, and the next thing you know, you have one of your employees talking to a competitor, and they're both trying to increase their profit margins in certain bids. And little did they know they've just walked you and your company into a criminal antitrust violation. You know, some folks have said, as sure as the sun will rise in the east, when the government starts shoveling out money, there will be fraud. The DOJ knows this, but Congress knows this too. And I think one of the best examples of what this looks like in practice is the CARES Act, which was the first COVID relief bill. When Congress passed the CARES Act, that legislation, which I worked on, at the same time also created the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Relief. Because Congress knows, having been through this, after various disasters, time after time, that government spending is always accompanied by fraud, waste, and abuse. And just talking about that inspector general for one minute, they're really starting to pick up steam. The most recent quarterly report indicates that they have 27 open investigations and they've secured their first guilty pleas and filed their first indictments. So this really is a perfect storm. I was trying to think back and identify other historical analogs, and I think there are several, especially over the past two decades. The first one that popped in my mind was the 2006 war zone cases, which I worked on during its initiation in my first time at the division. Perhaps most recently, in January 2022, the antitrust division indicted a case in Maine, and the defendants were home health care providers. And this really was the perfect intersection between the DOJ's efforts to enforce procurement fraud and the division's newfound focus on prosecuting labor market cartels. And the alleged crime there was that these owners of healthcare companies decided to start getting together and agreeing to fix the wages that they paid their workers. And the reason they did this was because COVID healthcare relief provided them an extra $5 an hour that they could pay their workers. When I think about the war zone cases, I actually think of Kevin and all the work you've done in government contracting. Kevin, do you have experience with various government contracting companies and how their spending and their compliance processes change in times of increased need? Joe, it might be obvious, but it's worth emphasizing. Times of increased spending bring increased government contract fraud, as you've said, and the increase in the number and the size of the instances of contract fraud typically is commensurate with the size and urgency of the spending surge. So military spending in wartime presents these circumstances in spades. The Department of Defense and the military services increased their spending on weapon systems, ammunition, equipment of all kinds, and a wide variety of services in support of the war effort. While much of this procurement activity takes the form of competitive acquisitions, urgency often results in sole source contracts further increasing the opportunities for fraudulent activity by contractors, sometimes with the help of corrupt military personnel. An unfortunate fact is that the resources dedicated to sound acquisition practice and fraud detection simply don't keep pace with the increased, often frenzied, 
military spending. As a result, while the opportunities for frauds multiplies, the chance of detection and punishment decreases. This combination leads to contract fraud in wartime that far exceeds the typical more measured peacetime increases in procurement activity. The fact that wartime spending often involves acquisition activity in the war zone itself increases even further the potential for contract fraud. Procurement actions are all the more harried, reliable contractors are even more scarce, and record keeping in the war zone is haphazard at best. Government spending in an active war theater presents a literal incubator for fraud and the theft of millions of dollars from the U.S. military. The recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan confirm this historic reality. Our support for Ukraine in response to Russia's invasion presents similar circumstances, but without the presence of U.S. troops or contractors in the war zone. Thanks so much, Kevin. Now let's transition and talk about the conduct that federal investigators will be looking for. So there are several types of illegal conduct that government contractors need to be wary of. Bid rigging, auctions, allocations of markets, customers, or employees, and then, of course, price fixing and output restrictions. I'm going to give you a few examples of this conduct from prior prosecutions and litigation. Let's start with bid rigging. Bid rigging violates the antitrust laws because it constitutes a conspiracy and restraint of trade. Bid rigging typically occurs when two or more contractors, that's companies that should be competing against one another for these government contracts, agree to divvy up or allocate bids with one another, right? So they say, I'll win this one, you win the next one. And as both Joe and Kevin have alluded to, bid rigging is particularly rampant in war zones and is an area that you should look closely at if your company is involved. So for example, in 2007, a Department of Defense contractor was sentenced to nine years in prison for a fraudulent scheme that involved bid rigging. There, a U.S. official in Iraq had conspired to rig bids to make sure that large contracts went to a civilian businessman, and the U.S. official received kickbacks in return. In 2013 and 2014, a former employee of a government contractor and his wife were found guilty and sentenced to jail time for a conspiracy that included colluding with another couple to inflate bids to the contractor. The next major category of conduct focuses on auctions. This is another place where competitors often agree to rig bids or otherwise restrain trade in violation of the antitrust laws. As you're likely aware, the General Services Administration, the GSA, conducts auctions to sell unused government equipment. There have been multiple indictments and guilty pleas for conspiracies to rig bids and eliminate competition involving GSA auctions. For example, the DOJ prosecuted co-conspirators who agreed to fix prices for bids for computers, agreed who should win each bid, and agreed to disassemble and share in all of the computer parts. This conspiracy lasted for six years, but the total value of the aggregated bids was only $67,000, showing that the DOJ is willing to go after even small dollar value violations. Next, and Joe talked a little bit about this earlier, agreements to allocate markets, customers, or employees violate the antitrust laws. This third type of allocation, agreements not to hire or solicit employees from competitors, which we also call no poach agreements, 
is an emerging enforcement priority that coincides with the Biden administration's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy and specifically in labor markets. So for example, in December 2021, the DOJ indicted the manager of an aerospace engineer company and five executives of outsourcing engineering suppliers in a conspiracy to restrict the hiring of engineers. Last and perhaps most obviously, it is illegal under the antitrust laws to agree to fix prices or restrict output with your competitors. Kevin, let's turn the lens more to government contracts. What conduct and legal issues are federal authorities specifically focused on? Bonnie, the core focus for federal law enforcement authorities has been bid rigging. The cases brought by GOJ's Procurement Collusion Strike Force bear this out. Of the four cases I've seen, three involve bid rigging conspiracies by contractors and procurements conducted by state governments and municipalities in Connecticut, Minnesota, and North Carolina. The fourth case involved the contractor's false certification of its size status under a Small Business Administration program in Texas. According to DOJ, it has more than 60 bid rigging investigations pending at this time. Now, as you explained, Bonnie, bid rigging is a violation of the Sherman Act. Such schemes not only constitute a violation of the antitrust laws, they also violate the terms of the government solicitations that are under competition. Specifically, they violate the RFP's Certificate of Independent Price Determination Clause. That clause is found in the Federal Acquisition Regulation at Section 52.203-2. It's a standard clause in competitive acquisitions. This certification, which a contractor is required to submit with its competitive bid or proposal, represents that the contractor hasn't collaborated with any other bidder in determining its bid price. If this certification is false, it can serve as the basis of a False Claims Act violation if the contractor is then awarded the contract and submits an invoice for payment to the government. The government keeps an eye out for other procurement and contract violations involving false certifications separate from those invoking antitrust concerns. SBA size standard misrepresentations, for example, can result in False Claims Act violations. That's the Texas case I mentioned. Another example is a violation of most favored customer pricing and the price reductions clause under GSA schedule contracts. That, too, can have False Claims Act implications. Now, Bonnie and Joe, I should mention that certain collaborative activity among competitors is permitted and doesn't run afoul of the antitrust laws. First, joint ventures are permitted. Second, a prime contractor competing for a government solicitation isn't prohibited from entering exclusive agreements or exclusive technology licenses with contractors or suppliers when competing for a government contract, as long as the JV doesn't deprive the government of competition. This analysis typically depends on the number of other competitors after the JV is formed. Again, as long as it doesn't deprive the government of competition. Notably, in 2020, DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission initiated an expedited review process for contractor inquiries about collaboration related to COVID-19 supplies and services. 
This program provides contractors with an opportunity for an expedited agency review so they can proceed with approved collaborative activities for the purpose of addressing the COVID emergency without concern for antitrust exposure. The third thing I'd mention, and it's also relevant to the COVID crisis, is the Defense Production Act, otherwise known as uh, DPA, which provides specific protection from antitrust liability. In those limited circumstances where the president has invoked the DPA's authority, contractors entering collaborative agreements consistent with the president's written direction are exempt from antitrust prohibitions. The contractor agreements, however, those collaborations must be reviewed, approved, and monitored in accordance with the statute. Now that we've highlighted the conduct and laws at issue, Joe, what does heightened vigilance mean in practice at these agencies? I think to understand heightened vigilance, it might be good to first discuss what is regular vigilance. So let's just say that federal government agencies are not always as vigilant as a prosecutor would hope. And in some ways, that makes sense given the scope and breadth of the federal government and the amount of money that's being spent every day, not every federal agency or contracting officer has antitrust violations at the forefront of their mind. So during quote unquote regular or normal times, you know, we at the antitrust division always considered these to be business development opportunities. So for example, I had several pre-existing relationships with federal agencies when I joined the division And I was encouraged to use my contacts at those agencies to set up times when we would go over and we would educate the contracting officers or the executive leadership of the agencies about exactly what these crimes were. And we would encourage them to be vigilant for them. Now we're talking about heightened vigilance and the supply chain initiative heightens vigilance, I think, in two areas. So domestically, the antitrust division is committed, in their own words, to, quote, undertaking measures to proactively investigate collusion in industries particularly affected by supply chain disruptions. Now, what does that mean? At bottom, it's important. As a prosecutor, you and your colleagues can only do so much when you're investigating a case. You always need the time and assistance of federal agents to help you investigate, serve subpoenas, execute search warrants, interview witnesses. But all of those agents have competing priorities like counterterrorism, investigating drug cartels, etc. So what this means is that the division is cooperating with these federal agencies and these federal agencies are making commitments of time, people, money, and resources to focus on the type of conduct that the division and other agencies are identifying as risks for collusion in the supply chain. When we talk about antitrust enforcement, the types of agencies fall into three categories. First and foremost, federal agencies. The primary federal agency that the Department of Justice uses for enforcement purposes is the FBI. However, there are important additional federal agencies, most notably the inspector generals, Inspector General offices, such as the Defense Criminal Investigative Services or the U.S. Postal Office, Office of the Inspector General, are very active in the antitrust space, and they will investigate issues or concerns with government procurement. The second type of enforcement agency are state and local agencies. The federal government often views state and local agencies as force multipliers because, by working on the ground level, they can be the first to detect collusion and report it up to federal agencies. 
Moreover, when investigating those crimes, they can be force multipliers and help federal agents as they conduct search warrants, interviews, or other investigative steps. The third category of enforcement actually is not an agency at all, but rather whistleblowers. Both in the federal and state level, governments have created incentives for whistleblowers, individuals at companies or else who else have knowledge, to come forward and report antitrust violations. In fact, the federal government in the end of 2020 recently reinforced the protections available to whistleblowers by providing them protection against retaliation by their employer. This federal law increases the incentives and protections that whistleblowers have to come forward, thereby furthering this race mentality to get people who are part of a conspiracy to step forward and report the violations that they see. On the international front, as part of the supply chain initiative, the division has said that they are forming a working group that will focus on global supply chain issues with Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. So the effectiveness of these international groups really depends on how often they're meeting and what kind of work they're doing. But I will say that from my time in the division, investigations that have international components thrive on informal information sharing between these authorities. Typically, when people think of international efforts, they think of the formal requests for assistance, such as those put through mutual legal assistance treaties. Those can take a substantial amount of time and may not always be as effective as people hope. However, if there's an informal information sharing agreement, that means these authorities can reach out to each other, share tips, share information, and can really help each other advance investigations. So this is a little less clear about how effective it will be at this moment in time, but it does have the potential to be very effective if the division truly dedicates the time and resources to making these productive. So as I think about the supply chain initiative, Bonnie, are you able to address what the procurement collusion strike force has been up to and how it's going to meld with this new supply chain initiative? Thanks, Joe. So as Joe referenced, the strike force since its inception in 2019 has been seeking to detect, investigate, prosecute, and deter antitrust crimes such as bid rigging and related fraud. The Strike Force is an interagency partnership consisting of prosecutors from the Antitrust Division and 13 U.S. Attorney's Offices, as well as investigators from the FBI Inspector Generals for the Department of Defense and the U.S. Postal Service. And as Joe explained earlier, what the DOJ Antitrust Division is trying to do is partner and train state and local law enforcement to detect collusion. Now, a key part of the initiative is the Strike Force's Data Analytics Project with dedicated attorneys developing tools and training partners in how to analyze bidding data to detect collusion. On February 1st, 2022, the DOJ actually secured its first conviction arising out of the Strike Force's joint efforts. Following a week-long trial in North Carolina, a jury convicted Brent Brubaker, a former Contech executive, for participating in conspiracies to rig bids and submit false certifications of non-collusion, for more than 300 aluminum structure projects that were funded by the state of North Carolina between 2009 and 2018. The evidence showed that Brubaker instructed a co-conspirator to submit non-competitive bids to the Department of Transportation and to hide his big rigging and fraud by varying the amount of inflated bids submitted. He also made clear to a co-conspirator that he would be hiding illegal conduct by deleting text messages that he received about the conspiracy. And interestingly, this also occurred while Contact was falsely certifying that its bids were submitted free of collusion, raising the False Claims Act concerns that Kevin flagged earlier. 
In addition, over just the past few weeks, the strike force has been really busy taking action across the country in a number of cases involving charges of bid rigging. In California, a former contractor at a food supply company admitted to violating antitrust law by conspiring with another company to submit artificially low bids to the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. Just one week later, in the same state, a former contract manager for the California Department of Transportation pleaded guilty to bid rigging and bribery charges for conspiring to obstruct the competitive bidding process for the state agency and for accepting bribes as part of that scheme. And then on the East Coast in Florida, three men were indicted for prearranging a winner in a competitive contracting process for customized promotional products to the U.S. Army. Cumulatively, these actions demonstrate that the strike force is continuing its zealous efforts to crack down on bid rigging at the local, state, federal, and international levels. The strike force actually appears to be picking up the pace in their investigation of prosecution of procurement collusion. In addition, these recent cases demonstrate the strike force is not limiting its enforcement to purely antitrust violations. Because these violations may involve additional legal conduct, such as fraud and bribery, the strike force appears to be broadening its approach to pursue all potentially illegal conduct that affects the procurement process. Kevin, what are some of the big developments on the government spending and government contract side that are going to catch the attention of the federal authorities? Well, Bonnie, the current funding landscape suggests three big areas, infrastructure, COVID, and the war in Ukraine. Let's talk about spending in each of those areas. First, the administration is projecting new infrastructure spending totaling $550 billion over the next five years. The focus will be improvements to roads, bridges, railways, water systems, public transit, broadband, and the like. This includes $241 million for 25 port projects to date and $450 million in DOT grants to expand ports, terminals, piers, rail yards, and storage facilities. The second area of big spending will be COVID relief, and that will continue to attract increased spending, albeit at a somewhat reduced rate from what we've seen so far in all likelihood. The third area will be the administration's continued spending and its commitment to the wartime support of Ukraine. In March, Congress approved $13.6 billion in spending in that area, and an additional proposed $33 billion in funding is now before Congress for debate. Big spending in all three areas is likely to mean increased antitrust and fraud attention by the procuring agencies and the Department of Justice for the remainder of the Biden presidency. Thanks so much, Kevin, and thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of MOFO Competition. Please join us next week for the second part of this series on government contracting antitrust risk, where we'll turn our attention to potential penalties and how to improve your company's compliance and minimize antitrust risk. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.